Well, uh, he was here last week, and he's here again this week. Uh, Nate Sims will be preaching us for again uh, for us again this morning. So, Nate, please join us. So, welcome back, which is good. I didn't get you know yelled at or anything from last week, which is always a good thing. Now, we are going to be going through the Book of John. You guys want a revival, right? Revival in your hearts. Okay, good. Because we're going to center in on the red letter, we're going to center on the book of John, we're going to center on Jesus, and if you have a bunch of guest speakers coming this summer, it's good for them to be cohesive, right? So we want to consistently build a rhythm of preaching, right? You know, when all these other sermons from all other directions, right? And so let's center on Jesus, and we're going to have a great, great summer, okay? All right. You know, I don't know why you'd ever want to do this, but if you want to eat an elephant, what do they say? You got to... One bite at a time, right? And a lot of freezer space because it's going to take you a few years to finish it, right? And so when you get to John 1 in particular, it is dense. It is an elephant. This thing has a lot of information in here. John 1 is very dense and rich theologically. So there's no way I can get through everything in, what, 30 minutes or so? You could preach multiple sermons out of the passage that he just read right now. And so I'm not going to try to attempt to do that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to answer three questions that this text raises. The first question is this, who is Jesus? Second thing is, what was the mission of Jesus? The third question is, what impact does that have in my day-to-day life, the mission of Jesus? What, what impact should that have in my life? All right, well, who is Jesus? Great question. Outside of John... People are talking about this question, who is Jesus? If you think about it, um, the reason why people have to think about this question is because Jesus is so influential. Jesus literally turned the Roman Empire on its back, completely turned it over. Christianity spread like wildfire, and it spread to all different kinds of cultures all across the world, even to this day, where the center of Christianity is in South America, it's in Af- you know, Africa, and it's spreading like crazy in Asia. Jesus is influential. Jesus is very popular. Even if you look at the movies, people curse his name in movies. People talk about Jesus in a general sense. Scholars know that he's a historical person, so he's very popular. People know he's real, so you have to do something. You have to respond to what their life is. There's no doubt, no question how popular he is. In fact, he's so popular that massive world religions popular world religions have to address him. Religions and religious figures of different faiths. Let's just take Islam, for example. Islam will say that Jesus is a prophet. 600 years later, that's, you know, they came up with the Quran, and and they said that Jesus is a prophet. Now, what's really interesting about the Quran is that Jesus is mentioned more than Muhammad. Jesus is elevated to a very high status. He is an important figure. He is in their belief. He's an important figure in their faith. If you talk about Hinduism, Hinduism believes that Jesus came in, reincarnated, came back into the world to teach humanity some really good lessons, right? To kind of fix humanity for that season of time that they're in. What about Buddhism? And I was doing, I was reading around some articles on BBC, and they talked about this, this man. I can't really pronounce his name very well, but his name is Ajahn, and he's a Buddhist and he's a head nun at a monastery, and this is what he said. I have the impression that Jesus is not particularly interest, 
interested in converting people to his way of thinking. And he goes on to say that Jesus and Buddha are extraordinary friends and teachers. They can show us the way, but we can't rely on them to make us happy or to take away our suffering. That is up to us. And so, in Buddhism, Jesus is very important. He's an important figure because he achieved nirvana, the ultimate reality. He's a great moral teacher, okay? So he's an important figure. What about Judaism? I read another article. This lady, uh, you know, she's a doctor, Dr. Jill Amy Levine from Vanderbilt. She identifies as an unorthodox Jew, and this is what she says. She says, just as there's no single Jewish view on most matters, there is no single Jewish view about Jesus of Nazareth. Some Jews regard him as a wise rabbi, and others see him as a heretic. Some find inspiration under his teachings, and others take offense at his claims. A lot of people take offense at the claims of Jesus. Jesus makes a lot of claims, right? So, what is the claim? What is so offensive about Jesus? Why has he spread everywhere? Why is he so important to everybody, and to, to some degree, and even in our culture, right? Well, let's look at it. So, what does John 1 say? We open up, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? So, let's, let's, let's talk about this Word. So, John uses an intentional word called logos, okay, right? In, in the Greek, it's called logos. So, I'm going to tell you five quick things about the Word, what we know about the Word. We know that the Word is uncreated God in the beginning. So the Word cannot be created because it's from the beginning. We also know that the Word is relational. In verse 1, it says the Word was with God, or in the Greek, toward God. So there's actually a relationship being described here right in the very beginning. And verse 2 says that, the word is a he. It's a person. Okay, so we see, okay, all right, this is interesting. He's a person. The third thing we see, in, in, uh, or the fourth thing we see, is that he's a creator. In verse 3, it says, all things are made from him. See, up to this point, you know, like Jehovah's Witnesses are going to say, okay, this must be some kind of divine-ish being that was kind of created, but it, you can't be because of verse 3. All things are made from him. Everything in this world comes from the word. This is a creator God. This is the creator God. And we find out that he gives life. He is life and he gives life. So if you go down to verse 14, you're going to find out that this is identified as Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? It's God. Now, this is a bombshell in this culture because I'm going to just take two basic audiences for you. We have the Jewish audience. We have the Greek audience. And when, when John is using the term logos, he's speaking to both people, and it's a very dynamic term because it has a large range of meaning, and it is absolutely a bombshell. He is flipping their whole worldview upside down. So let's just talk about the Greeks here for a second, because the, the Greeks use the word logos in their own specific philosophical way. So let's talk about it. To the Greeks, they mean rationality and ordered structure behind the universe. Now, what does that mean? Well, to the Greeks, they would go outside and they would say, wow, it is a lot of structure out here. There's a lot of order. It is not chaotic. And if you do that, if you go outside like science, sure, we'll reveal to you 
The world that we live in is very orderly and very structured. It's not chaotic. And so they believe that there was a logos behind all that structure, an ultimate reality, an impersonal force, so to speak, that kind of put everything into motion in, in, in a sense. I know this is a little bit philosophical. It's, it's, you know, it's Greek stuff. But to, to give you like an example, if there was a dryer and you wanted to, what, dry your clothing, you put your clothes in there, you would dry it, right? But there's a manual that tells you how to use it. That manual tells you if you don't clean the lint trap, it's going to burn the house down. Or your clothing is not going to get dry, right? So you, there's a manual that tells you how to use the, the dryer, which is very structured and very orderly, right? That manual informs impersonally how to use it. And so for the Greeks, and I'm just going to give you two basic philosophical thoughts here, you're going to have the Stoics who basically said, okay, here's a structured reality. We're going to respond to that reality by just simply accepting suffering the way it is. So, uh, you know, if there's whatever events happen in your life, you just take it in. You just accept it. If you're stuck in traffic for hours, you learn to love it because that's what reality is. And, and you try to restructure your mindset to just accepting whatever comes your way. A lot of military people like that stuff because, you know, that's how they deal with their life. Whatever comes in your path, you just go through it, right? Secondly, you have the Epicureans. And I mentioned these guys last week, right? Both of them, Stoics and Epicureans. But the Epicureans were like, okay, in this structured world that we live in, there's beautiful things. There's things that make me happy. And so they would try to pursue the happier things of life. Sounds like American culture a little bit, right? And so to the Greeks, it would be very weird for John, when they're reading this, it's a bombshell because what is John saying? The logos is not impersonal. The ultimate reality is confined in a person. It's different. That's a bombshell. That's an amazing claim. What about the Jewish people? Well, see, the Jewish people, they thought, they thought of the Word, right? The, God's Word as His power and presence. Now, I'm going to say something, and I want you to tell me. I'll let you, you know, say something. When I say this, just tell me what, what, what comes to your head. In a galaxy far, far away. Star Wars, right? Instantly you go to Star Wars, right? So when John says, in the beginning, the Jewish people, right to Genesis. Right to Genesis. And this is astounding for for John to say that Jesus is the Word, a person, is outrageous because in the Old Testament, you cannot see God and live. You die. Moses, when he saw God's glory, he had to like hide from it in the clefts of the rock because when, when God passed by, you just can't look upon it. You would die. God is so amazing. He's so transcendent. There's no way that we could comprehend his presence and live. It just, it just doesn't happen. Now, there's hints of this, right? If you read in Genesis, what does God say? Let us make man in our image, right? There's a unique complexity to God in the Old Testament. I don't have time, like I said, I could preach multiple sermons. I don't have time to go through all the Old Testament texts that point towards God's complexity as a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Just don't have time to do that. But what, what's happening is John's saying, Jesus is God and he's among you. Total bombshell. Which makes sense, though. Like, how could Jesus be so popular? How could Jesus be so popular with these, with, with, with these kinds of claims? 
right? I mean, like, as C.S. Lewis talks about, he's either Lord, lunatic, or liar, right? If I'm a homeless guy, which Jesus was, he was doing ministry, he was homeless. If he's homeless, walking around saying, I'm God, I'm God, everybody, woohoo! How could that person possibly transform the entire world? It makes no sense, unless he truly seeks God. Right? If, I, if, if this morning I said, guys, I just kind of got a little secret for you. I'm the president of the United States. You guys would be like, okay, that guy's never coming back. Let's take him off the schedule, Tim. Get him off the schedule. Right? Crazy. Jesus says, I am. John chapter 8, I am, I am before Abraham. So, this is just the first chapter, right? So, what, what do we have here? Jesus is God. That's the first point I want you to know. Very simple. Who is Jesus? He's God. Okay? So here's the question. What is the mission of God? Right? Like, okay, so, so Jesus is here in the flesh. Like, what's going on here? What's the purpose of God? What is, what, is, what is Jesus all about? Well, it breaks my heart to say this, and it just, it just does. But I, I, as an evangelist, I talk to people all the time about God, and I, I ask a lot of questions. And so I ask people, so what's the mission of, uh, what's the mission of Jesus? What did Jesus come for? What's his message? What did he come to do? Now, here's the sad part. I talk to people who are actively Christians, and I talk to people who are not Christians, and I talk to people who are culturally Christians that basically say, yeah, I grew up in the church, but I'm not, I don't identify with that faith anymore. But you know what people say is, I don't know. If I say... Or, you know, if I press them on it and somebody says the right answer, what's the right answer? Well, Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid for my sins. And then I said this, and this is a real time. I was a bunch of soldiers, and somebody actually said that. And I said, okay, what does that mean? Crickets. They don't know. What does it mean that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins? What is that? People don't know. It's sad. A lot of people know about Jesus in our culture. They, they, they get it, right? But they just kind of think that you pray to him. You know, Jesus was a nice guy. Like, turn your cheek. Go feed, the, you know, go feed the poor. Go do some good moralistic things. A lot of people would describe people in our society as moralistic, therapeutic deism. You kind of be a good person. Do some good morals. You know, believe in God. That's not too involved in your life, right? You know, just, just enough for therapy. And then, you know, he's just kind of, you just kind of live a decent life. That's what a lot of Americans kind of believe, right? But when suffering comes in, their life falls apart because their God is nothing. So, this Wednesday, this past Wednesday, just a few days ago, okay, there was a group meeting, and I was in a meeting, and there was a woman who said, I am having a crisis because I don't know who I am. I feel like I have no value as a person. And I said, well, do you have a faith background? Yeah, I got a faith background. I got a Catholic background. And she kind of explained a little bit about her, her, her background. You know, she prays, you know, kind of, you know, got baptized and things like that. I said, well, what was the mission of Jesus? I don't know. Well, do you mind if I share with you what the mission of Jesus is? Yes, please. Yeah. Share, share what you think about Jesus. All right. You know what I said? John 1. Now, I actually didn't say John 1. But John 1 literally shares the mission of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, what I want to do, because I'm talking to your brains, I want to talk to your heart for a few minutes. I'm talking to you as a Christian. I'm talking to you as a non-Christian, whoever's streaming online, doesn't matter. I'm talking to you as a human being. I want to 
tell you about the mission of Jesus the exact way I talked to this, this woman. Okay? So, God created the world, right? Yes, God created the world. So God exists as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? So God's triune. God exists in three persons. Each person's fully God, yet there's only one God, Romanotheist. But he's very complex. He's relational. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they indwell each other. It's beautiful. So by definition, God is both love and relation. So when God creates humanity, intrinsic to his nature. So when God creates humanity, he's inviting them into love and relationship. It's beautiful. Now see, if God was unipersonal, just one person, strict monotheism, no complexity, no interpersonal things going on, right? There'd be something wrong with that God because that God would have to create human beings to both experience love and relationship. So the triune God does that, creates human beings, and man, this is great, wonderful relationship. Humanity's having a great time with God. Everything is phenomenal. Until Adam and Eve said, we want to be our own kings and queens. We want to do things our own way. And so what Christianity says the problem of the world is, what the Bible says the problem of the world is, is this darkness, which basically means that we are sinners, which really means that we're selfish. If you want to identify the problem of the world, it's selfishness. We are selfishly dark, right? We want to do what we want to do. We want to oppress other people. We want to, we want to live for money. We want to use other people for our own advantage. Just look at the news. Look at the world that we live in. It's chaotic. It's divisive. It's dark. This is the problem of the world, ladies and gentlemen. We live in darkness, and there's selfishness all over the place, okay? Now, what that does, as God is light, is it, there's a separation. God's presence cannot be, right, like fully accepting of everybody's lifestyles in, in the sense of, yeah, we're going to have a great relationship together. No, it broke our relationship and so what you see in the Old Testament is God works with his own people, right? He works with the Jewish people. There's prophecies about, you know, he's going to, you know, there's going to be salvation and all this beautiful workings, right, that God orchestrates through the Old Testament. And it's a lot, it's a big story, right? But what ends up happening is the Jewish people failed to live up to God's standard. They had the law. God said, here's the law. It's a beautiful grace. Now you know how to live. They couldn't measure up to it. And so how does God fix the problem? He sent himself. He said, I'm going to go in. I'm going to fix this problem myself. So, so God comes into the world as Jesus Christ and does two really amazing things. He, first thing, he identifies with us. Not only does he identify with us, he identifies with human beings by becoming a full human on the lowest social scale. Jesus was born into a poor family. His parents offered turtle doves, pigeons as a sacrifice. That's a poor person's sacrifice when Jesus was born. Animals are pooping all over the place. It was chaotic. There's no place in the inn. Okay, if I was God, I'm going to come in and I want to be fed the silver spoon. I want the good food, right? I want the good drink. I want, I want to be taken care of. I want that warm bed. Jesus didn't. He identifies with us in absolute pain and suffering through his entire life. Not only that, that's radically different than other religions. The other religions are going to say, um, you guys need to come up to my moral standard. You must do good things for me. Come on my turf, and you might have a good relationship. And I'm certainly not going to get into your messy darkness down there. It's just too much, right? Not the God of the Bible. 
He says, I'm going to come into your mess. I'm going to come into your pain and suffering, and I'm going to embrace that as a part of my story. It's beautiful. So Jesus lives life getting betrayed by friends. He gets, um, you know, he's homeless. I mean, that's not fun. I don't know. I mean, I haven't quite been homeless yet, but I I don't think it's really a fun thing, right, to, to be homeless. Religious leaders made fun of him, right? They resisted him. And so Jesus is suffering through his life yet being perfect, not being selfish, not doing anything wrong against God's law. It's climax of suffering. But he dies on the cross, and really this is the climax of suffering right here. Jesus is dying on the cross, and three things are happening when he's doing it. He's physically experiencing pain, right? Just, you know, blood gushing out all over the place, getting ripped open, getting his beard yanked out of his face. It is a horrible experience. The second thing is he's experiencing emotional pain. Now I look out here, people, you know, like all of us at some point, whether you're young or you're older, you're going to die, right? Like you get in a car accident, right? Some of you could just get a heart attack. We could be dying. Now what if on your deathbed people were making fun of you? You're a fraud. You're no good. You're pathetic. Here Jesus is dying naked on a cross, in front of his family and friends, and of all these people, and they're making fun of Jesus. Oh, king of the Jews! They're spitting at him. Spitting doesn't hurt. But I guarantee if somebody spits in your face in front of people, it's going to hurt emotionally. He's dying, and he's being made fun of. That sounds like a pretty isolating to me. And then the climax happens when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, some of you are experiencing a lot of pain in your life. When Jesus was going to the cross, before then, he was in a garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood, just dripping off his face. Because he, he said, Father, if there's another way, let this cut pass from me. Let this get away from me. I don't want to die. What did he hear? Back from the Father. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. He's crying out in pain. Nothing. When Jesus is on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's more than just a psalm. What did he hear? His last question. What did he hear? Nothing. The Father and the Spirit have turned their back on Jesus. You're absorbing the sin, the punishment of human beings who are selfish and corrupt? I'm turning my back. And so Jesus is alone. And he's feeling that separation from the Father and Spirit. That beautiful relationship that he's had for eternity past. Now all of a sudden there's a problem with you, Jesus. You took on the sin of the world. Crushed them. You know, if you have a relationship with somebody, let's say you get married, or maybe if you're like a parent-child relationship, the longer you know somebody and you lose that relationship, the more painful it is. It hurts to lose somebody that you love. And here Jesus is doing that, and he didn't have to. <laughs> he could have packed his bags and said, I'm out of here. That's an amazing story. That 
is the key to Christian living. That is the key for verse 12. What is the mission of Jesus? For you to become his son and daughter, to become a child of God. That's an incredible, an incredible story. Let me just tell you, all right? I'm summarizing what John 1 is saying. Look at verses 1 through 4. God is the giver of all life. He becomes a light to people. Darkness, in verse 5, could not resist or overcome him. It doesn't matter how wicked we are. It doesn't matter how much we rebelled against God. We cannot stop God. Right? How about verse 11, right? God suffered through rejection by his own people. The Jewish people rejected Jesus. They rejected him. They literally were crucifying him. Also, look at if you go down... In verse 14, it says that Jesus tabernacled, that's the Greek term, tabernacled as a human being, right in front of them. In the Old Testament, where was the presence of God? It was in a tent of meeting. That's where, but there was all these veils. You couldn't just go in there the presence of God. Right now, Jesus is right in front of them, talking to them face to face, giving them a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and they still rejected him. Right in front of them. Like, you can't get any closer to God. And despite his rejection, he lived a perfect life, full of grace and truth. Verse 16 and 17. Grace upon grace. See, Moses, when, when the Jewish people received the law of Moses, it was grace. Do you know why it was grace? Because the law tells people how they should live by their creator. The logos. He says, I know exactly how you need to live. If, if there was a fish that just said, I don't care about the rules. I don't care about how I'm created. I'm going to go and be a lion today and jump out in the water and just flopping around. It's going to die because it's not living the way it should live. See, God gave people the, the law of Moses and says, here, you want to know me? Here you go. This is how we live in good relationship with people. People fail to meet that expectation. And so what does John say here? Jesus Christ is the grace upon grace. He's the one who lived the law that you couldn't do. Your, 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 all your failures and messing upness, God could do it. Jesus Christ, post-resurrection name. That's the grace upon grace. You know what the amazing thing about the cross is? When Jesus died on the cross, he paid for your past, present, and future sins simultaneously. Everything in your past has been paid for. Which means you don't have to live in guilt and shame anymore. Do you have a divorce? God's not holding it against you today. You know why? He's fully satisfied in you. He imputes his righteousness to you. You are now getting the righteousness of God because of your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's what he requires. Simply have faith and trust that Jesus died on the cross and paid for your sins. And now God looks at you as if you're Jesus. Isn't that incredible? You don't have to live in guilt and shame. Ever. That's the best news. That's the earth-shattering news. That's the bombshell that John is throwing to the world. It's awesome. So, how did that woman on Wednesday respond? This is what she said to me. Do people normally get really emotional when you say this? As she's got tears falling down her face. This is about the third or fourth time somebody's told me this in the past month and a half. So I said, yes. Why? 
because she has value that God loves her so much to adopt her into his family. See, Acts chapter 17 talks about human beings in a general sense being God's offspring. But like in Romans, and what this passage is telling you here, when God adopts you, he adopts you because something chaotic has happened. You don't just adopt random kids. There's a problem. God adopts you. Jesus will adopt you into that family and say, you're my child, and nothing can take that away from you. Somebody very close to me once said, I just can't believe God would send people to hell. That's a horrible thing. Would you ever send your child to hell? I said, no, I wouldn't, no matter what they did. Ladies and gentlemen, all of human beings are made in the image of God and have tremendous dignity and value, but you're not a child of God until you accept Jesus Christ and get adopted into his family. That's an improper analogy to say, would you send your child to hell? Because God will never send his child to hell because of Jesus Christ. So, how does this impact your life? How does the mission of Jesus impact your life on a day-to-day basis? Well, let me just tell you, it takes the pressure off, right? Other places in Scripture is going to tell you that Jesus came to give you peace and rest, right? He's going to take all of that law, and he's going to take it, right, living, living the law perfectly, living the perfect life. He represents you. That takes the pressure off. That means you can't fall in and out of God's arms. You're not just the child of God one day and not the child of God the next day. You're his child. You can rest in your relationship with God because he understands your heart fully, more fully than anybody else in this room could possibly know. So let me paint an analogy. Why do we obey God? Well, if I gave every one of you $55 billion today, in a sense, you're going to say, Nate, I love you, man. Like, this is just great. You know, you give me $55 billion. Now I can pay off all my debts. I can pay off everything. I can live a great life. Great. What if I went on vacation this summer and I left? And I said, listen, I don't have anybody to mow my lawn. Could you mow my lawn for me? You would say, yes. No problem. I got you. Got you covered. Now, when I come back in September... If I come back and I get the sense that you think you're paying me back, I'm going to be very offended. Can you really pay me back by mowing my lawn? You think $55 billion, you think mowing some grass is going to really pay back what I gave you? There's no way. So for Christian living, we don't obey God because we're trying to pay him back for what he did. Like, there's all I got because we love him. Like, there's all I can possibly do is serve you and love you. I can't, there's no way I could pay, pay back what you did. The infinite creator of the universe comes down, identifies with us, dies across. I guess that's crazy. There's no way you can pay him back. But what you can do is see him a little bit more beautiful today. See, people think you can just graduate from the gospel and just kind of live your life. Well, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. If you think you've graduated from the gospel today, no matter how long you've been a Christian, if you think you've graduated your heart can definitely get calloused over time. Oh, the gospel's somewhere back there. No, 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 no. The gospel relates to every human being, every human experience you could ever imagine. The gospel speaks all the time. Loving your enemies, that's tough, right? Loving people that are different than you, that's difficult, right? I mean, there's all kinds of things that the gospel speaks into. The gospel needs to be the center of your life every single day. 
And if you do that, if you embrace the beauty of Jesus Christ, it's, it's, you just, you're going to love opening your scripture. You, you know, you're going to love listening and obeying God. Number two, we desire, how, how does the mission of Jesus impact your life? We desire to glorify God, not ourselves. Ministers, if you're an elder, if, you're, um, if you've ever done full-time ministry, it's not about you. Nate Sims, it's not about you. John the Baptist says, I've come to bear witness about the light. I'm not the light. I've come to bear witness about the light. See, Jesus is so popular, it attracts a lot of people. It attracts a lot of pulpit ministry people that go around, they use eloquent words, and they talk about Jesus, and it's so, oh, yes, listen to my words. Uh-uh. John the Baptist says, uh-uh, he must increase, I must decrease. You can use Jesus for fame because he's a famous person. Absolutely. It attracts a lot of people into the pulpit ministry, into the life of vocational ministry. That's why it's very important to keep yourself humble by the gospel. Remind yourself of the gospel ministers because of what Jesus has done, right? Keep us humble, right? As Philippians chapter 2 talks about, Jesus humbled himself. We need to be humble, right? But also, like, I want you to come away with this, too. Right? John was, was sent, verses 6 through 8. He was commissioned, right? Just like Moses was commissioned to Pharaoh. Just like Isaiah was commissioned in Isaiah 6. Just like Jeremiah was commissioned in 1. In, in, in Jeremiah 1. See, John was sent to bear witness about the light. You're sent. You are sent to bear witness about the light. The Great Commission. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. You are commissioned. And some of you go, man, that's really difficult, talking to people. Let me tell you something. If you eat a really good burger today, like the best burger you've ever had after the service, and you're like, oh, my, this, this is just so good. What are you going to do? You're going to tell somebody about it. You're going to invite them into this experience. You've got to try this burger. This is so good. C.S. Lewis says we naturally praise the things that we enjoy. All praise is because we enjoy something. If you are enjoying Jesus Christ, if you're enjoying what he has done for you, it is only natural then to share Jesus with people. That's all it is. Evangelism, right? Sharing your faith with somebody, being commissioned to bear witness about the light, it's enjoying Jesus Christ in your heart and letting that overflow into talking about him and your oikos, people where you work, play, learn, eat, and all that stuff. That's all it is. And there's a lot more to it because we live in a unique time. But at the end of the day, talk to people. It's a way to share your faith with people. But at the end of the day, how does the mission of Jesus impact your life? We can rest. that he, he did it all. And now we can have the joy of seeing his beauty to share it with other people. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for this passage, John 1. Because it tells you, it tells us, that, that you have come to represent us. In all of our weakness, on all of our pain, all of our struggle, you identify with us. You are an intimate God. You are not a faraway God. You are very much in our world. Help us to comprehend as much as we can of your beauty so that we can serve you, so that we can talk about you, so that we can forgive others. God, you are so good. I pray for revival in this church. I pray for revival in Christians in our country. I pray. So we everybody to see your beauty so that we can change the world through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
God, you are good. We love you. Amen.